You, if you have not signed up for dodgeball or thought about it, you should sign up for dodgeball. I've been reading uh, some of the rules this week, rules I did not even know. I don't know why we have to have all these rules for dodgeball. We, we are bringing in an actual dodgeball referee to ref the games. So if you're like worried it's going to be me, it's not. I will be playing and you can throw a ball at me. Not that you don't already do that anyway. Um, but like, here, here's a great rule. If you stand there with, like, yeah, you, play, you play dodgeball in school. Just let me see. Right. And, and you see those kids, they get the ball and they go hide in the corner like, like, like this. If you hold a ball more than 10 seconds, it's dead and it's got to roll to the other team. Oh, brilliant. There's a bunch of other rules like that, but we have rules and a referee. Sign up. Uh, it'll be on Father's Day, and if you have a team up to six people, you can just sign up your team. If you are one or two people and you want to play and get on a team, sign up. We'll put you on a team. If you want to just come and watch, we'd encourage that as well. We're going to sit there and just cheer on one another as people get balls thrown at them, and we will feed you. It'll be a great day just to gather together. Sign up for dodgeball. You should do that. Um, also, uh, the uh, CareNet does a baby bottle fundraiser. They typically do this in January, uh, but our Januarys were so full, so we decided to start this uh, last week, but we forgot. So we're starting it this week. <laughs> and if this is just a really simple fundraiser for them. Uh, you just grab a baby bottle because they help you know, uh, women, mothers in our community who are having our time. They counsel them. There's, they do a lot of great services in our community. Element supports them. And what you can do is just grab a baby bottle on the way out the door. They're right out those double doors in the back and just fill it with change over the next month. Like if you go to, like I, I've been really jonesing for a, oh, we are live streaming this thing. Uh, I start just talking and rambling. I was really jonesing for a, a Oreo cookie milkshake. So we went, and then when you get change, just throw the change in the bottle instead of your ashtray. Or if you don't throw it in the ashtray, where you put it, throw it in here. And it also holds dollar bills as well. You can put that in there because it's good. But fill this up. You get four weeks to do that. Bring it back on Father's Day. We're gonna, uh, everything goes to CareNet. So just grab one and take it. And at your leisure, just fill it up and bring it back. If it's not full, it's okay that it's not full. And if you get attacked any time in the next month when this thing has a whole bunch of change in it, it works great. Aaron's just going to shut up now. <laughs> if you are new to Element, welcome. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes around the room on the communion tables. They look like this. And on the inside, on the left-hand side, you're going to get a half-page recap with some stuff that we talked about today. On the right-hand side, you're going to get some questions to reflect on what we talk about. On the back, you're going to get the verses that we're covering. On the bottom, there's a place for notes. And at the very end of the message, I'm actually doing this thing in the second paragraph that I want, hopefully if you have that, it's a great thing to walk away with to keep, but I'll Point it out when we actually get there. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called UVersion. Click on More and then Events in UVersion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, and all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is James 5, 19 and 20, and it says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings a sinner back from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Father, today we ask that as we end the book of James, you would 
teach us what you have been showing us the entire time. How to live lives that honor you and step into one another's lives in ways that we love one another. Teach us to walk and trust the ways that you lead us so that our lives would glorify you and that we would begin to love one another correctly. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is our very last week in the book of James. If it is your first time, you've got 18 weeks to catch up on. Go in the parking lot, put it on 10 times speed. And I'm kidding. Uh, this is our last week, and I really love it when we go through a book and we finish and we get to the end because I feel like, you know, there's the finish line we've gone through. You guys have hopefully learned a lot in this, but also I would tell you that I would love for you to go back in a week or a month or a year or a couple years and go through the book of James again. Just read it because the scriptures are what we we call didactic in nature. They, they teach us. And I think the more that we read and the more that we pray and the more that we walk through the scriptures, the more that we learn. And so even though this is our last week, I would still encourage you to go back at some point and read through it again and again. I, before we even started to teach through the book of James, before I started to write anything down, I had gone through it like seven to nine times just to make sure I had certain things in my head of where I wanted to take you with it. So spend some time and go through that. Uh, two of my favorite commentators, they actually end the book of James with those last couple verses and they call it spiritual reclamation. I called it speaking the gospel because in the end it's going to be the same thing. So to bring this to a close, what I'm going to do is briefly cover and talk about everything we've talked about really quickly and then bring it to how James closes the book. So, so far what we've talked about is trials. The people that James writes to are these people who are placed out in the world. They believe in Jesus. They're Jewish believers, but they are downtrodden by those around them. So we start in the place of trials. And then we speak about faith and doubt because in the midst of those trials, there is some faith, but there's a whole lot of doubt that comes with it. And then we talked about the paradox of suffering. After that, we talked about temptations and desires and what they actually look like in real life. Then we talked about speaking and listening. We talked about being hearers of the word as well as doers of the word. We talked about how to not be judgmental, but actually extend mercy to others. We talked about how to walk in works in our lives that reveal the faith that we say that we have. We've talked about watching our mouths and the things that we say. We talked about walking in wisdom from above versus wisdom from below. We talked about pursuing pursuing godliness and not worldliness. We talked about walking in humility. You're like, we did? Yes, all of these things. Uh, we even talked about seeing money rightly. As a matter of fact, I was talking to a friend of mine last week who said after that message, they went and they looked at how they spent their money over the entire last year. They went and they looked and they were like, I spent a lot of money on me. Because when we talk about money, it's not a way for other people to judge you. It's a way for you to be able to look at where your money goes and how your life is, what your life is geared towards. And so he did that. And he's like, I'm going to change that a little bit this year. I thought, great. Uh, we talked about the importance of patience. We talked about walking with God and trusting his spirit that our salvation is found in Christ alone and that leads us to a place of humility so we don't have to be anxious and build walls around ourselves where maybe we do something that's kind of embarrassing to ourselves but you know it's okay it's okay because God is the one who rescues us he is the one that gives us our identity and so our yes can be yes and our no can be no and then last week we saw how James moves us towards the ideas of prayer in ways that we trust Christ for our maturity and our life we talked about the empowering work of God's spirit that enables us to pray 
and praise at his guidance. And these are all gifts that God gives us through his spirit. And they are birthed in us as we are anchored in the person of Jesus Christ. And what I wanted you to see through all of these things that James walks through is this isn't a list in our lives. Here's the things you do. What it is, is a way to see that we are meant to be in relationship with our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ, the Son. Last week, again, it showed us that we have been given this gift that in the midst of prayer, we can actually confess to one another. We can repent with one another. And the book of James kind of shows us this idea of sanctification. And sanctification is simply this big word that I say means salvation in present time. We are told in the book of Hebrews that because of Christ's death for us, he has taken away our sin and he has given us his righteousness. And we are told that we have been made perfect forever. Then it says, God has made perfect forever those who are being made made holy. That means day by day, God is conforming and moving us to be more in the image and likeness of his son. And so day by day, God convicts us and changes us. And sometimes people hear that word conviction like, oh, I don't like that word. Conviction is a beautiful word because it means that God is working in us, that God cares about us, that God knows us. It is mercy and grace to see that God is doing something in our hearts. And this is why I keep telling you the gospel frees us up in our lives that we can be wrong about some decisions we've made. We can be wrong about a whole lot of stuff, and being wrong doesn't have to be soul-crushing or destroy us, because God has called us to himself. We can own it, we confess it, we repent. And now James gets through all of that to this place of reclamation. He keeps talking about, look at your lives, how we're living, great, go through that, and now make sure you start to love and look towards one another. Open your Bible to James chapter 5, it's on page 656 if you have an element Bible. And we always want to speak of the gospel in ways that remind one another who we are in Christ. Jesus rescued us because we could not rescue ourselves. So this is how James ends. This is what I had you stand for. I'm going to read it again. James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, James uses the word wander here. And when we think about the word wander, we tend to think an inadvertent, oh, how did I get here? Like, I meant to go there, I got sidetracked, and I just, and I ended up over here. I don't know why I'm here. We will go out wakeboarding sometimes. And when we're on the lake, middle of the day, time to eat lunch, we shut the engine off, and we just start eating a sandwich or whatever in like half an hour. We just goof around and talk and stuff. And you look up, how do we get so close to the shore? The rocks are right there. What are we going to do? You turn the boat, you pull, you drifted towards it, right? You didn't really meant to get there, but that's you got there. That's how we typically think of drifting. But you have to understand in the New Testament, the word can mean that, but it also means so much more. So the first thing I want to tell you if you're taking notes is you can write down, wandering can be more than drifting, but it's not less. But it's not less. Wandering can actually refer to any deviation from the truth of faith, whether it is inadvertent or intentional, minor or major. And so first I do want to tell you, yes, sometimes it is that unintentional drifting. Your life just drifts. Now, if you have been a Christian more than, say, I don't know, 10 years, raise your hand. Okay. Now, in that 10 years, how often do you just drift sometimes? 
right? We all do. We, we all do. We all end up just drifting somewhere. COVID hits, right? COVID hits and we're all like, I don't like this. And then six months later, you're on the couch in your pajamas going, this is the best thing in the world. I'll watch church like this. Nothing wrong if you're still watching online. That's not what I'm saying. But, you know, everything opens up. We're, we're meeting together. And it's like, I just like my jammies. It's great. You just, we just kind of drift a bit. And this also happens to a lot of things like news cycles and news stories. Anytime that something captures our attention more than the gospel, we start to drift. And we can get angry or we can get anxious or we can get frustrated. We do just simply start to drift, every single one of us. And that's why we started this morning with that hymn. And come now, found where it says, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. So here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Sometimes wandering is inadvertent. We just start to focus on other things and God seems to become less important to us. But James also, when he writes this in the book, it's very important because sometimes that wandering happens because we choose to. We choose to wander different ways. And this is why it's so important to pay attention to the wandering. Because though there are those who wander and that wandering is going to be evidence that they never really trusted Christ with their life at all. It might, they, someone might look like a church person. I don't know what that looks like, really, because you go here. We don't know either. Um, uh, they may sound like a church person. I, I don't know what that sounds like. People have said, I'm not refined enough in, in, in my speech. But whatever it is, sometimes it goes to a place when all is said and done that you don't really love Jesus. And when we examine our lives, we can see that maybe we never believed in Christ to begin with. And it is not up to me, and it's not up to you to pronounce judgment on somebody else's salvation. And that's not what we're trying to do. But we're trying to do what James has been saying the entire time. Examine your life. Do you really love Christ? Do you believe what you say you believe? And then if you actually do, then start to look around and love one another around you as well. There are many people who will come and want to talk to me about certain things going on in their life. And sometimes as I talk to somebody who's maybe been at Element for a very long time, I will say, do you believe in Jesus? When did you become a Christian? Because all the things that they're going through are things that's like Christ isn't even on the radar at anything in their lives. And I know not everybody can point to a specific day or specific time, but there really should be some place in our life where it's like, man, that's when I started following Jesus. It was then, and, and, and I loved him more than I loved myself. I was talking I'm talking to one guy, and, he, and I asked him, and I, go, I go, do you know Jesus? Do you understand the gospel? And he says this. He goes, I was born in Santa Maria. And I'm like, that's not what I asked. <laughs> that's not what I asked at all. I mean, being born in Santa Maria doesn't make you a Christian. It might make you a redneck, but it doesn't make you a Christian. <laughs> Having Christian parents doesn't make you. I was born here, okay? I can say that. Uh, having Christian parents doesn't make you a Christian. Going to Element doesn't make you a Christian. Showing up to church every week doesn't make you a Christian. Being a good person doesn't make you a Christian. Having someone sprinkle you with water or dunk you as a kid doesn't make you a Christian. Adhering to a certain conservative, moral, religious code doesn't make you a Christian. James's push throughout the book comes from this concern that there are people in the church because they are doing certain things in their lives, thinks they're believers, and they're not. And so when James says there's wanderers, one of the reasons it's so serious is some wanderers think they are Christians when maybe they aren't. In the King James Version, it will say, if any of you do error from the truth. And so wandering means to disbelieve or wander away. 
That right now in Christianity, there's this huge thing called deconstructionism, and people are deconstructing their faith. And there's people who have been pastors, there are people in the music scene who are all like, I'm walking away from Christianity because I'm deconstructing my faith. And if you look at what they're deconstructing, they're not deconstructing Christianity. They're deconstructing a moralism and a legalism. They're not deconstructing a real relationship with Christ. And it's sad because this is what James is talking about. This word that we get wander from, it's this Greek word that refers to the planets. Eventually, we do get a word planet from that. And it's like a heavenly wanderer. And the Greek text, it's almost like, I don't care what's happening. I'm going to go do the thing I want to do anyway. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That word will go is the same word for wander that James uses. 2 Peter 2.15, forsaking the right way, that would be the way of faith, you know, the, the way of the Word of God, they have gone astray. That gone astray, that's that same word, that is wandered, wandered. Wandering is not only an inadvertent wandering, I mean, it can be, it can be, but it's a love of something more than we love God Himself that leads us into something that, that James at this point would have called sin, and then we delight in that sin. And I don't know if you've ever seen an example of this in your life. Maybe someone you love or care for, and they jump into something, and it starts destroying them, and you say something about it. And instead of being like, yeah, you're right, they just double down on that thing that's destroying them. A lot of times, that's a relationship with somebody. It's like somebody's just not good for somebody else, but they don't care. They just double down on that thing. It is a decision that says, I'm going to love this thing more than I love my God. I'm going to love this thing more than I love the grace of Christ. That is wandering. And that's a question we have to ask ourselves that James pushes us towards. What do we love more than Christ himself? What do we love? And that's a hard thing to come to because a lot of us don't want to actually look that closely at it. James does not see all wandering as just being absent-minded or unconscious. It's a wandering not just in some doubts or questions. We've already dealt with those that sometimes doubts and questions are good. They can lead us into answers that lead us deeper into faith. But James is talking about here a wandering in a lifestyle. Like today, what we want to do is we like to separate people's actions from their beliefs. But in James's day, it wasn't like that at all. It's why when he talks about his faith, he says, I will show you what I believe by what I do. You can look at my life and the way I live shows you what I, and that's true for all of us. Ancient believers would never separate like we do today, the, the physical from the spiritual. It was all one person. You wouldn't separate the intellectual from the behavioral or the doctrinal from the moral. Greeks did that. And today we are much more informed by Greek thought than we really are how the early church would have thought. We are not a split being. We are one. And what feeds one is going to feed the other. It just does. And so as James continues to ask the questions he does, it keeps coming back to these ideas. What do you believe? Because that affects how you live your life. Now, there is this old word called apostasy, you know, and it talks about, you know, wandering from the faith, walking away from it. And that is really discerned in two ways. One is called doctrinal aberration, and the other one is called moral deviation. And doctrinal aberration is when we stop believing what Jesus has said about himself or what the scriptures have said, and we say, this is what I think the Bible teaches. And it's like, but it actually says this. Well, this is what I think it's supposed to say. It was like, well, but it says that is doctrinal aberration. And then moral deviation goes along with that because it affects our doctrine. They go back and forth with each other. What we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves. Millions of people today, you will see this. They will change what they believe to accommodate their behavior. 
And the scriptures are constantly moving us to a place where many times our behavior needs to change because of what the truth of the scriptures reveals and what God calls us towards. And too often we are changing what we believe to accommodate our morals. And James says that is wandering. You see how big and encompassing this word actually becomes as you start looking at it? See, James's concern is not because he's angry. He's concerned because he loves these people. This is why throughout the book, he's been calling us to be sensitive to the moral changes in our own behavior while avoiding judgmentalism. Then look at the behavior of other people. Be sensitive to the changes in our brothers and sisters around us. In, in our day, moral wandering could be a very sure sign of theological wandering. Billy Graham once said this, No man can be said to be truly converted to Christ who has not bent his will to Christ. He may give intellectual assent to the claims of Christ and may have had emotional religious experiences. However, he is not truly converted until he has surrendered his will to Christ as Lord, Savior, and Master. And this is why at Element we talk about what the gospel is so often what the gospel truly means so we know how and why we are actually saved because when we know how and why we are saved we can then identify the lies that we tell ourselves and then the lies that other people are saying as well and then we get to step out and be God's ambassadors in the world to truly woo one another back to Christ as we love them as he has called us to and it is again why the book of James is so hard because it keeps going back to that brutal self-examination each step of the way. The book is not about perfection. The book is not about you figuring it all out. It's about trusting Christ as he changes us day by day. And when we understand the gospel and we're willing to step into the messy, broken lives around us, not that ours aren't messy and broken at the same time, James says, you know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. See, this is about after we examine our lives, then we step into one another's lives in ways that love them, which then goes into my second thing, if you're taking notes, is this. How are we meant to be in each other's lives? Well, this is what James talks about. There have been a lot of churches and a lot of Christians throughout the ages that have wandered, not always for any good reasons whatsoever. Now, I want to kind of talk to you about the church in, in the city of Corinth because Paul goes in here and he talks about some wanderings, and I think it kind of relates to James and how he talks about this. Paul will write these two books, First and Second Corinthians, about a whole lot of questions the Corinthians have. Now, Corinth was the most wicked city probably in the Roman Empire. Nobody went to Corinth unless you went there to make money, to try to be successful in business, or for sex. It is the most success-based and sex-obsessed place in the Greco-Roman world. And they actually made up a name for people who lived there in that way, and they called them Corinthianizers. And if you were a person who lived lawlessly with total self-indulgence, made everything about yourself, you wandered into that, you were a Corinthianizers. Now, when Paul was there, many of these people in Corinth became believers in Christ. And then after Paul left, these same Corinthians kept talking about the gospel and other people started to believe. And I think for all the hate that a lot of commentators give the Corinthian church, because they were jacked up, a lot of the hate they get, it was incredible for where they were and how they witnessed and how they stayed in this city, even with all the problems. Because today, what do we do? I want to go out of California. I want to find me a state that, that everybody just agrees like me and votes like me. It'll be nirvana on earth. That'll surely fix all my anxiety in my life. And if you're somebody who stays in California, it's like, why would you stay there? Well, sometimes we stay because God has called us to. You are living typically in Corinth. And, and we're in the midst of a society and a, and a culture, especially in the state of California, that many times loves to wander and pushes other people to want to wander. 
And these Corinthians, they stayed there. The Corinthian church had more problems almost than probably any other church because it's trying to figure out how do we live in this culture, in this city, in a way that reflects Jesus better. When a Corinthianizer became a Christian, it was really amazing because they were typically active and brilliant and talented and driven and they wanted to change the world. And then they started to follow Christ and they were still active and brilliant and talented and now they wanted to change the world for Christ. They were committed, but they had lots and lots of problems. Problems. And they brought all of their habits into the church with them. And it brought all kinds of disputes between people. And they fought with one another because they were passionate. And Paul talks about all these things. In 1 Corinthians 5, one of the members in Corinth, his convert, is having an affair with his father's wife. That's bad, okay? If you don't know, it's, it's bad. And Paul even says the pagans were scandalized by this. It's like, well, what's this Jesus bring? He brings that. What's going on with that? He says the pagans are scandalized about this. And what's interesting in talking about that is I wonder, would our culture be scandalized? by that same type of thing today. Now, another one in 1 Corinthians 8, you're there struggling with what degree do we have a relationship with those around us, with my pagan friends? What degree is that? How do I get involved in the parties that they keep inviting me to? So can Christians who used to be pagans still go to parties in which the pagans get together and they eat this food that was sacrificed in temple sacrifices? How much can we be involved? How much can, and they're great questions, lots of difficulties. I mean, this is what sometimes led to their wanderings. And Paul addresses how some of them got off work early at one point on the first day of the week, which was a Sunday, or some of them had enough money not to go to work, and they'd show up for their weekly feast together, their gathering. And some of these people would show up early, drink all the wine, get lit before anybody else showed up. They got lots of problems, just crazy stuff. So there's a lot of fighting, there's a lot of disputes, a lot of confusion, and all these continual moral wanderings. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a reformed preacher, very conservative guy, actually said something that kind of shocked me about the Corinthian church. He says this, there are very few, today there are very few churches that are vital enough to even need to read First and Second Corinthians. And I was like, wow, wow, it's a little dig at us and how we want to separate ourselves from the culture how we don't want to engage. And in order to need to read 1 Corinthians, you have to be evangelizing. And at times that'll be hard. And at times there'll be disputes. And at times they will have these people struggling with old habits. And Lloyd-Jones says, really any vital church is going to have a certain amount of disorder in it. Welcome to Element, right? <laughs> or now my GC makes sense, you know, whatever it is. James in his book, he deals with confusion and discipline, the need for confession of sins, examining our lives. And then he ends with reclaiming people who have wandered, not writing them off, but understanding that sometimes people wander. Paul and James do not shy away from calling sin, sin. They do not shy away from calling wandering sin. But there's a greater purpose than judging one another. So take this guy having an affair with his father's wife. Most commentators believe this is, would be his stepmother. People don't know what to do in Corinth. You know what they did? Nothing. They overlooked it. It's too awkward. We don't want to step into that. We're not going to deal with that. And so Paul says, you have to go to this guy. You have to talk to him. And if he doesn't listen, he says, you should be filled with grief and put him out of your fellowship. And you think, whoa, we wouldn't do that today. You've got to understand, Paul doesn't say you need to be filled with anger and put him out of your fellowship. He doesn't say you need to be filled with judgment or condemn him and put him out of your fellowship. He says you're filled with grief. You're filled with grief over it, but he won't change. And it's besmirching the name of Christ. He said you should weep over it and then have brought discipline. And you know what? They did it. 
they did it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that same person actually comes back from that wandering. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8, Paul will say, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him, or he may be, he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. You don't keep with that judge. It's like, bring him back in. Love him. 1 Corinthians 5, did you go to him? And with grief and tears, explain what's happening in his life and how he's wandering and not listening to Christ at all. Did you confront him about his sin? Not because you want to control him. Not because you're on a power trip. Because you love the name of Christ. And when he didn't listen, did you say, you know what? Then we're going to discipline you like this. 2 Corinthians 5, he is greed. He sees his sin. He sees his wandering. And he's restored to fellowship. Paul says what James says, and this is the thing I put in your notes in that second paragraph if you want to look this up. Number one, we will not survive without Christians confessing their sins to one another. We must be able to do that. Secondly, we will not be witnesses for Christ and loving each other if we don't step into other people's lives in ways that are hard. And it will be hard. And third, we will not be those who bring one another back without real relationships with one another. Let me say that one more time. We will not survive without Christians confessing their sins to each other. Secondly, we will not be witnesses for Christ and loving one another if we do not step into other people's lives in ways that are hard at times. And third, we will not be those who bring one another back without real relationships with one another. One writer said this, In confession, you go to somebody and say, I have a sin, I'm caught, help me. But in reclamation, you have to go to somebody and say, You're caught, you need help. And you help them as much as you can. Any church must be willing to do this or we are not the church that God calls us to be. Kent Hughes once wrote this, To save another from spiritual death is indeed the greatest thing one human can do for another. He is not saying that we save people. It's Jesus who does that. But the point of the book of James pushes us to be God's ambassadors to the world. Whoever brings a sinner back from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. See, James pushes hard throughout the entire book because we are a people who have hard hearts and shallow hearts and infested hearts and we make up the church. And this is what the church is made of, people like us. And as Americans, we have a very hard time engaging with others because we think our personal lives are completely off limits. How dare someone ask me about this? How dare someone do this in my life? But that is a recipe, James says, for wandering. For wandering. And so James' call is for the church to practice this ministry of reclaiming one another. That, that doesn't mean that, oh, someone's having a problem. I'll tell them to go talk to Aaron or Eric or Mike or Steve. or whatever. No, it is you loving somebody enough to step into their life, to speak of what the gospel is, and begin to work, do that work of reclamation. I'm going to give you five, uh, five steps for this. Uh, Kent, these are from Kent Hughes. I'll be brief. I promise. I'm looking at the time. I'm going. Uh, number one is this, love. Love. Why do we start in love? Because Christ first loved us. He has called us to himself. He has drawn us to him. So we start in a place of love. The church must engage in love instead of rejecting the wanderer, even when it leads to discipline. We're not rejecting the person. We are loving them by doing what we need to do. Charles Spurgeon once wrote this. 
I have known a person who has erred, hunted down like a wolf. He was wrong to some degree, but that wrong has been aggravated and dwelt upon till the man has been worried into defiance. And when a man has been blameworthy in his life, it will often happen that his fault has been blazed abroad, retold from mouth to mouth, and magnified until the poor erring one has felt degraded and having lost all sense of respect, has given his given way to far more dreadful sins. The object of some professors, meaning professors of faith in Christ, seem to be to amputate the limb rather than to heal it. And when he says that, he's referring that many times we will talk to one another about somebody and something they're going through rather than talking to that person. And love would take us to talk to that person. Proverbs 10 verse 12 says that love covers this multitude of sins, not because love atones for them, but because love cares enough to maintain this relationship, to step into each other's lives where people are wandering. It is grace, and in that grace, God moves. The second thing he says is integrity. Integrity. If we are to be used to help restore someone, we must possess what we want them to have. A relationship with Christ. I'm not saying you can't ever mess up. You don't have to be perfect. Galatians 6.1, Paul says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you, our spiritual, should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. So to restore someone else, we must trust in Christ ourselves. Love, integrity. Third, he says, prayer. That's all we talked about last week was prayer. We must pray for those who wander even if we need to confront them. First uh, John 5.16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. And sadly, as I said so often, our words go out to each other in gossip rather than to God himself. And if you have somebody in your life that is wandering and you love them, you should start praying for them. And your prayer should be specific, detailed, regular, and passionate. Uh, last week, we had you guys fill out prayer requests and had, then when you came and got communion. You grabbed one and took it with you. Hopefully you prayed for that this week. We had about 12 left and we gave those to everybody on staff. So if you did put one in, don't worry. Hopefully everything got prayed for this week. But that's a way to begin to write things down. I want to pray for this person. Make it detailed and specific and regular and passionate. And passionate. James says last week, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Love, integrity, prayer. And then fourth becomes that confrontation. Then the confrontation comes. But the confrontation comes out of love itself. Love doesn't shy away when someone needs truth. 2 Thessalonians 3.15, Paul tells this church regarding disobedient children to warn them as a brother. And that word means brother or sister. In Acts 20, Paul speaks of admonishing the church in Ephesus for three years. Three years he kept doing that. Too often, we want to overlook things in people's lives around us that we say that we love because not confronting them makes our lives easier. Not their life, but our life easier. But as God's people who are not of this world, right, we live differently because we are now part of God's family. And when we do confront, we must do so relying on the wisdom and the love of God. Love, integrity, prayer, confrontation. And then as a last resort comes that type of discipline. Last resort. Jesus even instructs us. Jesus will say how to do this in Matthew chapter 18, which in our next series, Never Read a Bible Verse, that's the last one I'm going to cover before we end that series. There are times we must do that for the sake of the wanderer and the life of the church. This is what it means to live redemptive lives. Because I am grateful that in the Bible, it never sugarcoats anything for us. It is just, this is the truth, here it is. And I love that because God doesn't shy away from loving us, from reaching into our lives, from confronting us and disciplining us. God does that for us. And loving one another is not 
easy most of the time. It requires some effort. It's like running or what, I don't know what, you probably, some of you don't run, but maybe you just, and you get that side ache, you're like, oh, I'm going to die. And I think God's like, you are not going to die. You're going to be fine. And sometimes we get into these relationships and certain things start to become really hard. It's like, I can't do this. I'll never survive. And God's like, you're not going to die. <laughs> You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Step into these things. It's going to be hard. Your relationship will actually grow when you begin to do this. We love one another in the hard places. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. And the way that we bring brothers and sisters back is to woo them with the love of Christ. And when we speak of God's love for us, that's not in some mushy way. When you speak about the reality of the love of Christ, it is Christ's death and resurrection given for us. It is the gospel. How do we live as a gospel-centered people? We must know the gospel. That's it. Jesus saves, not us. And so we speak of his message of how God reclaimed us, how he drew us to himself. And then we call people to him. And yes, this is how the book ends. It ends with, after all these things of examination, examination of yourself, examination, now look to others. And where are they? And after you've done this hard work, or God's Spirit has done this hard work in you, we then step into others' lives in ways that love them enough to speak the truth. Again, not because we are trying to manipulate them, not because we want power over somebody else, but because we love them the way God has first loved us. And this is why every week we've got to come back to the place where we understand what the gospel is, that we have run from God, that we have wandered in many ways of our lives, that we have run towards rebellion. And our God has come to save us. And this is why when you take communion, you break a cracker. It reminds us that Christ's body was broken for us, a decision that he did to save us. His body broken. His blood poured out. That's why you dip it in the wine or the grape juice. Because we cannot atone for our own sins. But Jesus does it for us. And as I said, when he does, his righteousness is then placed upon us as a gift. We get to become a people who have a righteousness before God that is not our own. It is from Christ himself. And then God lovingly does this work in our life day by day as he convicts us and moves us to be a people who conform more to the image and likeness of his son. We come as we are, and God then does his work in us. And as we come to communion, we remember that, that it is not me who changes me. It is my surrender to Christ as Christ, through his spirit, changes me. And if you like to take communion, they're on all the tables. Uh, if, you, if you want a sealed single use, those are in the table in the back. If you want a gluten-free option, it's in the table in the back. But this is why we take communion, to remember and remind ourselves what Christ has done. If you need prayer, maybe you are in a place today where maybe you have somebody you feel like God is calling you to step into their life and, and they're wandering in a way that's hard and you don't know how to do that. Uh, grab someone at the Welcome Center. They'll connect you with somebody. We'd love to be able to pray with you about that and talk through some of those things. Because God is good and God is faithful. And we so, so often as God's people are so unfaithful. And yet he is good. And he keeps calling us back to himself. And so let us be a people who trust him enough to live as he calls us to. Uh, if you'd like to give, there's offering boxes next to every door. We give because God gave so much to us, giving is part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's always meant to be responsible to what God has done, so that's why we do it that way. And I encourage you to grab those sermon notes. Take those questions. Talk to your family, your friends, your gospel community about that. Maybe you can identify some wanderers that you know right now that you would love to have people start praying for. 
and maybe help you to know how to step into their lives. Or maybe you are that wanderer and somebody has talked to you and now you find yourself here today and I'm talking at you and you're just like, oh my goodness, will God not leave me alone? No, he won't. <laughs> he will keep going after you because he loves you. Because God is good. And so we, as a people, respond, hopefully in that same way, understanding how God chased us down and loved us and brought us to himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being so good to us that we, as wanderers, have run from you. And God, if we're totally honest, it is not just some inadvertent wandering where we're eating our sandwich on a boat we end up next to some rocks. It is that we have decided that we want what we want more than we want to love you. And so I ask that we would begin to see the beauty of the gospel, of our own salvation, of what has been offered to us. That our Savior would come in love to die in our place to restore us from our wandering. And I asked, Lord, that you would get that deep down inside of us so we would understand it enough that we would have a passion to step into other people's lives around us like you have first stepped into ours. That as we always say, our lives would be a response to what you have first done that we would understand the great grace that we have received. And in grace and integrity and prayer and love, we would step into one another's lives. That we would be those who reclaim those who wander, not because we have the power of reclamation, but because we have experienced the power of reclamation. To just to live in ways that glorify you and that honor you as we live as your children in this world. Amen. I know Mikey dropped the curtains, as he does, just really quickly. Take a moment and think about if there is anybody God is leading you to step into their life or talk to them, or if you are someone right now who is wandering to identify the places where you are drifting in your life, whether it is inadvertent or whether it is on purpose. God, is there anybody you are steering me towards? Or, God, also show me the places where I am wandering. Because what we want to be is a people who are honest enough to share the places that we are drifting and wandering. And we don't have to step into a place of shame because of it. We can just simply be completely undone because God loves us even in that place to draw us back to himself. So let's be a people who stand amazed at what God has done and lay all of ourselves before him.